CPA Charge is the payment solution designed specifically for the accounting industry, making it easy to accept credit card, debit card, and ACH payments from your clients online. Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, CPA Charge, later in the episode. And to learn how as a listener of the Cloud Accounting Podcast, you can get a $150 account credit if you sign up by September 30th. Do you generally require payment prior to filing? Oh, this is so sad, David. You want to take a guess? So this means, you know, do you get the money up front or do you wait until after? All right, so you come into my office. I'm going to prepare your taxes, but I'm not going to file them yet until you pay. And right. or, a lot of firms or you're just gonna... file it and then ask you for the money when I'm after that. Right. Yeah. So it's got to be 65%. 58% of firms do not require payment prior to filing. Today is Sunday, September 12th. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. Blake, another week. Yeah, short week. I always love these short weeks after Labor Day. Now that we're recording almost a full week, but yeah, that's right. It was a short week. I I failed to uh, recognize this now that it's almost over. And we talked last week about how we were hoping to uh, make this a catch-up episode. We've got some stories we haven't talked about. I've got that Drake tax prep fee survey result thing I've been teasing for two weeks. So I'm eager to get into that, talk about how accountants are charging for tax prep. I don't know. um, Not too much else new. Well, actually, there was a big thing. Eisner Amper, top 20 firm Eisner Amper, they just got bought by a private equity firm. I couldn't believe this when I saw it. Like I, I couldn't believe it was bigger news. I it didn't. I didn't see it come through on my name. My new stuff. So please continue. I guess that is my top story uh, this week. Um, I got some news about vaccinations uh, at the Big Four, and regulation of uh, tax preparers is gaining steam once again. Maybe it will actually happen this time. That's uh, what's top of mind for me. How about you? So a private equity company purchased Quicken, so it got sold, bought and sold again. I saw that. Yeah, that's interesting. And then remember my, my um, prediction that players that are not in this space are going to get into this space? Yes, sir. So the two big ones. So a uh, little thing about Amazon's going to build a point of sale. Ooh. And Facebook's in the refactoring game now. Like refactoring invoices? Yes. Okay. Facebook. Facebook. Wow. All right. <laughs> where, where do we start then? I guess, I guess this Eisner Amper thing, right? So I saw this in CPA Trendlines just today, September 12th. There was an interview with Eisner Amper CEO, Charlie Weinstein on CNBC TV, where he talks about how a private equity firm called Tower Brook Capital Partners is buying half of Eisner Amper LLP. So Eisner Amper, for those who are not familiar, is one of the profession's top 20 firms with more than 420 million in annual billings. They've got 200 partners and 1,200 employees. And they've sold half the firm to Tower Brook Capital Partners. It's a private equity firm with big investments in the financial services sector. And the way this is happening is they're splitting into two entities. So the legacy Eisner Amper LLP, the licensed CPA firm, is going to provide attest services. So they're breaking off audit, attest into the old entity that's going to stay there. And the PE funded entity is going to be Eisner Advisory Group LLC. And that's going to have all the business advisory and non-attest services. They didn't disclose the terms, but CPA Trendline says that Towerbrook has a reputation for taking controlling interests in the companies it funds. Now, audit and assurance accounted for just about half of Eisner's pre-deal billings, and then the rest are 42% in tax and 9% in consulting. So consulting is actually fairly small in Eisner Amper compared to, say, the big four firms, where it can be, I think, 20% or more, and 42% is tax. So like this is a a big deal because basically all the non-audit stuff, I mean, that's not, they're not a CPA firm anymore, and yet they're still going to be a top 100 firm. So you have a top 100 accounting firm, not a CPA firm. 
So I'm, I'm trying to adjust when they, so when they separate these entities out, is this to avoid like that conflict of interest that we talked about before, the whole problem of like, are you really auditing them if the same company you're also consulting with? Does that help that argument? Like, are they truly going to be two separate entities or is that just business structures? Yeah, this is just speculation, right? But okay. I feel like the reason that they're breaking them apart is probably to do with the fact that audit firms, well, CPA firms have to be owned by a certain percentage of CPAs and it has to be more than half in, in a lot of states. I don't, I don't know exactly what it is in all the states that Eisner Amper does business in, but that's one of the barriers to this sort of transaction for that kind of business. But you can take out the audit and you can do whatever you want, right? It's no longer a CPA firm. So I think that's the reason for this is now they aren't subject to all those rules and all those regulations. I mean, so do, you th- do you think this is going to be a trend? Well, it, it makes a lot of sense, right? A lot of firms, we've seen this with small firms, a lot of small firms are saying, oh, I might have a CPA. I am a CPA or I'm a former CPA, but I'm not going to bother being a CPA firm. It's just too much effort. Like, why would I do that if I'm not going to do audit? And clearly, again, we don't know the reason behind this, but I think that the same logic is present in this deal. And so this also kind of sends a message that what they feel is valuable, considering it's it's outside money coming in, is the non-audit work that firms do. Well, that's the growth opportunity, right? The big growth opportunity is is non-audit. It's all the consulting. uh, It's all the stuff that the big four have grown doing, the advisory work. That's been so successful that for the big four, audit is just a small piece of what they do now. I mean, think about that. The one thing that you need a CPA for is no longer the majority of the business in the firm. I mean, this says a lot about the future of our profession. So now if you go to work at Eisner Amper and you're not on the audit side, they're not a CPA firm anymore. So, uh, you know, what is that? Are they going to be hiring CPAs? I'm going to guess, you know, that trend will continue to decline, especially for them. So, you know, I, I mean, this is existential, existential threat to the CPA designation, the profession. But you could also say it's a good thing because what should CPAs be actually focused on? You know, there's an argument to be made that, well, if if audit and assurance is the one thing that we hold a monopoly over, uh, that's what our license allows us to do, then maybe that's what we should be focusing on and not all this other stuff that distracts from that mission of providing assurance and, I don't know, the backing up the capital markets with our opinions, right? Giving confidence to investors and all that. So, you know, I mean, you could, you could, you could say that it's, it's, it's a good thing in that perspective, but it's it's not going to grow the CPA. I don't think it's just going to contribute to its marginalization. What the so uh, keep an eye on this. Yeah, I'm curious. I'm curious what our listeners think, um, and I'll I'll be looking out for more of these deals. And I am I'm going to do my best to learn ab- about you know what happened here and, and get to the bottom of this uh, the reasoning for this. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Rewind. Imagine if a meteorite wiped out Intuit's server. It's extremely unlikely, but if it did happen, Intuit would be able to restore all your data and everyone else's that was lost. Rewind has built a backup solution for data loss situations that are way more likely to occur to your client's data. Malicious attacks, buggy apps, disgruntled clients, and of course, ourselves. Human error, the number one reason people lose data. Say goodbye to making manual copies of clients' files, CSV exports, or storing redundancies on hard drives. Rewind is introducing a new way of protecting your data through an automated daily backups and on-demand controlled data recovery. As the leading cloud backup app trusted by over 80,000 organizations around the globe, Rewind has saved thousands of accounting professionals from mind-numbing manual data entry rework. To learn even more about Rewind and access a special offer just for listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash rewind. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash R-E-W-I-N-D. So, so maybe KPMG has this uh, planned as possibly too then, because they, uh, I don't know if you saw this in the UK, They've announced that they want to set a target for the number of employees from working class backgrounds. Uh, yeah, yeah. This is like uh, 
on top of their diversity efforts. Yeah, and it feels like a diversity effort, but just the way it's framed is very, very interesting. Um, and th- they've even defined it. So define working class as having parents with quote unquote routine and manual jobs, such as drivers, cleaners, and farm workers. So like my dad worked construction. I would argue my parents were very working class. Um, and they want Maybe you should emigrate. And they want to get, get a job there. And they, they, they think it's a, it's a diversity play, right? Um, they want to basically by 2030 have 29% of the partners and directors come from working class backgrounds. 20%. 29%. 29%. So this is in the UK, you said? In the UK, yeah. I don't know a ton about the culture over there, but one thing I have heard, maybe this is a stereotype, is that the UK is a very class-oriented culture where people are born into a certain class in society and they tend to stay there or, or much more than they do say here in America where we don't really have that there. It's a little more rigid. So maybe this is overcoming that. Yeah. Because I mean, there's stats, especially when they think because of the pandemic, there's even more people that are uh, 600,000 more children are now living in po- poverty compared to 2012. Um, so it, it's definitely part of their diversity and, and empowering. It's just the way it's framed. It's just very strange. And, and maybe it's not as strange in the UK to be, yeah. but I, th- I think if you, spun this up in the US and start talking like this, any corporation, I think people would, you'd, you'd get the wrong kind of headlines, I think. Yeah, maybe it, it would be a little strange here, right? Well, since we're talking about big accounting firms, let's talk about COVID-19 vaccination mandates. I mean, this has been all over the news because of what the Biden administration is doing with basically using as much presidential power as possible to get as many people vaccinated as possible with with mandates. I've been curious, you know, what are the what are the big four firms doing? And the last time I checked in on this, I heard that KPMG is now following Deloitte's lead in requiring COVID-19 vaccines for employees to enter its facilities. So Deloitte was the first. KPMG is also sending out this information to its employees. But unlike Deloitte, it's now going to allow unvaccinated employees to show a negative COVID-19 PCR test administered within 72 hours to enter. So you can either have a negative test or you can be vaccinated. KPMG also says that internal surveys show that 86% of their employees and 94% of their partners are vaccinated, which is very high compared to, what are we in the US on average, like mid 50%, something like that. Uh, That's what's going on over in the big four when it comes to vaccinations. Well, they probably need to because they were the ones that were building all these vaccination websites. They got all this money from it. That's probably part of their contract too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Right. But they didn't work. (laughs) Or or their data is bad. (laughs) That might be the other problem here (laughs) is their data is bad that they have. So I also have a survey about what employers in general in the U.S. are going to be doing about COVID-19 vaccinations. This is from Willis Towers Watson, as reported in CFO.com. They surveyed 961 companies and found that 52%, so just over half, are planning to require employees to be vaccinated in the fourth quarter. And that's a big increase from the 21% that had the mandates in place this summer. So it must be that FDA full approval or something that has caused this to change, or maybe it's just everyone's sick of the Delta variant. But yeah, over just over half of US companies are now going to require employees to be vaccinated. Of course, that's going to go way up now that the Biden administration is making all employee all employers over I think it's a hundred employees, right? Fifty-nine percent of employers are tracking vaccination status. Nineteen percent more say they plan to do so by the end of the year. So that's like getting up to eighty percent are going to track vaccination status. And I think with accounting firms, it's actually a little bit lower than than that, but it's it's not too far off. I think it's about half and half last time I saw. I wonder how just the, without requirements, just the fact that they're tracking will help move the needle on that. You know, sometimes just, just having metrics sometimes improves the metrics. Yeah. Yeah. Or if, if everyone knows that Dave in accounting is the only one who didn't get vaccinated, like, does anyone want to go to, does anyone want to go to, <laughs> is <laughs> anyone going to want to... <laughs> Yeah. Is anyone in, I want to, I can't even say it. Is anyone going to want to go to lunch with Dave? You know, I mean, he might just be sitting alone. Well, this is one of the problems. Unloved. I have an article that was in the New York Times. It's kind of related. And so we talked about, you know, every the shift to remote work 
people that are working two jobs. Um, and, and we've talked loosely about the whole great uh, resignation, that's, resignation that's happening, yep. right? And people jumping jobs. Well, one of the things they're seeing now is people, then the, the title of the article is, if you never met your coworkers in person, did you even work there? <laughs> and what you're seeing are people are like, one of, one of these downsides to all this working remotely is you've never met your colleagues, you've never met your boss, you've never met anybody other than had Zoom calls. So another job comes along, like you're not emotionally invested. So you just leave. Well, and you, uh, and there's people, there's stories where people have taken three different jobs during the pandemic and then finally joined a new company with former colleagues they used to work with in person. Um, stories uh, like that. Well, well, you know, and of course we, we, one of the, one of the most popular stories that we talked about recently was the one where people were holding, you know, more than one job at a time. And I think one of the reasons it's easy to do that when you're working remotely is that you don't care as much about the people you're working with, right? They're just boxes. They're just boxes on your Zoom gallery or faces in boxes. Companies have worked so hard on their culture, right? For decades. You know, even into it, one of their values were it's the people. Mm -hmm. And so now what's happening is you have these sets of employees that just are not connected emotionally or personally to their jobs anymore. And that's becoming the new normal. Uh, but the pendulum also swings the other way where companies aren't really emotionally attached to employees now. Well, yeah. They're like, are we all just gig workers? You know, I mean, you could argue that was the case, uh, you know, during the, the layoffs in the Great Recession. It sure didn't seem like these companies cared a lot about their workers when it came down to the bottom line. and and survival and all that, right? They'd rather lay everyone off than figure out how to keep them. And so now what you're seeing is you're seeing, um, you know, positions at companies posted for director of remote work, head of remote, right? Trying to figure out ways to keep these things, uh, these going. Jen Reimer, so she's a postdoctoral scholar at Stanford who basically studies workplaces and workplace relationships. She's, her quote was like, these companies can't just say, oh, go be social, go to the virtual happy hour. Right, it's <laughs> yeah, not going to yeah. create culture of building friendships. I mean, a lot of people go to work because you have friends at work, and you're motivated right. by that. Right, and right. if you're not getting that, why you could just work for any company? I think that building culture should always be intentional, regardless of whether you're working remotely or whether you're in the office. But it has to be very intentional when you're remote, because the spontaneous stuff just doesn't happen, and you can't just like throw cake into the break room and create culture. Hang up a sign. Hang up a poster. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I, you know, I, I don't know. I'm, there's benefits to both systems, right? But, like, I don't know. When you compare the, the soul-crushing cost of sitting in traffic in a major metro like LA, which I'd lived through, you know, driving an hour to go 12 miles to work. It's just mind numbing, soul crushing, so much better to be working from home. I don't care how much I like the people at work. I didn't want to do that five days a week. So, you know, the hybrid thing is going to be the future. Two, three days a week, you do the soul crushing commute, you do the happy hour with your coworkers, you go out for lunch, and then, you know, you don't do it the other days because you don't have to do it every day to like get that. You know, that's that's what we're going to end up And if you're firmly right? pregnant, I mean, this is something as a firmware you're going to have to think about. Because I, th I think the the sell for a lot of like modern firms, a lot of people listen to the Cloud Accounting Podcast for recruiting employees, like, hey, you get to work remote. Well, now every firm's offering that as a benefit. So how do you level that up? But then, yes, you get to work, work remotely, but hey, we do these offsites. We're all going to go to Whistler. I just made that up. <laughs> we're going to go skiing and spend two weeks <laughs> as a company. I'm, well, you know. Yeah. Doing events yeah. together with your employees because, yeah, I, I could totally, I get this. You're, just, like, you're not emotionally attached. It just becomes a paycheck. So when I started working at Giraffe, I was working fully remote, only employee in LA. And as part of my compensation, or as, I don't know, we, we talked about this before I got hired. I don't, know what, I don't know what you would call it, but it was like part of my expense allowance was I could fly to San Francisco HQ once a month, the company would pay for it. I could stay for a night and be social, whether or not I had a reason to be there. And we would just come up with a reason. And that was great. That was enough because I would really pack in all that stuff into one night going out with my buddies at work. And so like, that's the kind of thing you've got a budget for. And you're saving all this money by not having it in an office. So, you know, do the annual 
retreat with your team and, and really go all out. Speaking of Giraffe, though, I have some personal news. I am leaving Giraffe. It's been two years, and I am uh, I'm saying goodbye to my friends there. It's been fun. It's been a lot of learning and a good time. But yep, time to time to move on. So, so just to rewind, so you went from accountant, got into marketing, got into two different apps. This is, this is the second app you worked for, right? This is my second tour of duty, second two year. Uh, marketing, yes, and and two years in a startup feels like ten years anywhere else. I think I don't know. I've never had a job for ten years, but that's what I hear. Yeah, I mean, I've been at Melio eighteen months, and uh, it feels about like eighteen years of into it. It feels like that. It's it's that okay. Crazy so that you fast. agree? Yes, okay, I agree. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, so it, it's it's really been fun learning uh, marketing from a software standpoint, and I am actually David. I am leaving marketing to pursue my dream of being a professional podcaster. Yeah. It's a thing. Kudos to you, David, because you run the sponsorship side of our podcast business. We now have enough revenue in our show. Thank you to all of our loyal loyal listeners for listening because you are who our sponsors want to speak to and they are willing to pay us for it. And it is allowing me to go off and yeah, be a, be a podcaster. It's going to provide that uh, minimum income so I can go make more shows and our listeners who, uh, have been listening since the beginning of the year, know that one of my New Year's resolutions was to figure out how I could get CPE to all of you for listening, to the CPAs and EAs who who need it. Well, I am building an app called Earmark CPE, earmarkcpe.com. You can go there and sign up, join the mailing list, and when the app launches later this year, You'll be able to listen to the Cloud Accounting Podcast and other podcasts and get continuing professional education credits for doing so. And then part of this is that you're going to record your own content of some type. Solo, a solo effort. Solo effort. But I'm not abandoning this show. I'm going to keep doing this. This is great. And you're just going to be recording more. More Blake. Recording more. Yes. More Blake all the time, everywhere. Uh, Going beyond accounting technology, right? Discussing the issues that affect the profession, the CPA world beyond accounting in general. I just think, I think podcasting is great for our profession. We all want to learn on the go and we're tired of sitting in front of our computers. So I want to try and bring more of that good stuff to everyone. My last day is, uh, is Wednesday, September 15th. Congratulations. Thank you. We'll have to, uh, (laughs) when, when there's news about your new endeavor, It'll show up on the Cloud Accounting Podcast. We'll be watching for a, a press release or something. A press, a press release, yes. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by CPA Charge. Accept payments online with CPA Charge, a web-based payment solution built for the accounting industry and endorsed by more than 35 state CPA societies and the AICPA. They make it easy to accept credit card, debit card, and even e-check or ACH payments from your clients anytime, anywhere. Whether you prefer to accept payments in your office, through your website, or on the go with a mobile app, CPA Charge has you covered. Plus, CPA Charge has all the payment features you need to streamline your cash flow. Features such as applying a surcharge to credit card transactions, which are automatically displayed on your payment page as a separate line item. Or scheduled payments, where you can automatically charge your client's payment information at a date and time you both agree to, whether it's a one-time transaction or a recurring bill. With CPA Charge, there are no contracts and no setup or cancellation fees. As a Cloud Accounting Podcast listener, you can take advantage of their special offer of a $150 new account credit if you open your account by September 30th. Head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash CPA Charge. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash CPA Charge. A-R-G-E, and sign up for your demo today. So I've got another survey. I love my surveys here. And this is the Drake Software 
2021 tax prep fee survey results. Thank you to Ray Ariano for sending this over to me. This is a survey of 3,900 plus preparers surveyed nationwide in August of 2021, or maybe it was before that the report was released in August of 2021. And some interesting bits in here. Question, generally, how do you charge for your 1040 preparation services? The top answer at 39% is a flat rate slashed fixed price, adjust up or down if necessary. So flat rates are dominant, 39%. 35%, so just over a third, say, buy forms included on the return, where each form has a price. Only 13% are charging by the hour these days. 8% by categories I have created, and then other 4%, 5%. So I, I thought that was interesting. By the hour is really, really low these days. And by the form kind of makes sense, right? Like, I think that's an easy way to explain it to a client. You have your base fee for the main form, and then, hey, if Depending on when we open, you know, get into things, you might have to use these other forms and we're going to charge fees for these other forms. You could definitely have a menu. Now, the client doesn't have choices of what forms you're going to have to fill out for them, but <laughs> you could at least have a menu and it could be very, it's very clear in black and white from a communication standpoint. Yeah. I mean, it's easy to bill. The one thing I don't like about it is that the clients don't understand what it means because they don't know what forms they're going to need really. Um, I like the most popular method, the flat rate slash fixed price adjusted up or down. But that's also not really based on value necessarily. I mean, I guess the adjustment is. But really, you know, if you're if you're going to be pricing these returns ideally, you know, I, I, I might even do it based on how much income my clients have. Because that's certainly going to determine how expensive I am in their mind uh, based on how much money they make because people who make more money are used to spending more on stuff, right? Do we, do we think about that? I don't know. It's hard to tell from this survey uh, what people are doing. Like the 8% that say by categories I've created, maybe that's in there. I'm curious. So it seems like most people are doing, you know, fixed fees, whether it's by forms or by some other method. How much are you increasing your fees from the prior year? Amazingly, 43% are keeping their fees the same. Now that's just insane. Because cost of living, inflation. We're all hearing about inflation, right? Inflation this, inflation that. Home prices going up 20%, 30%. And arguably, there's more stuff to track now. Just just between right. the – taking just on a personal level, right? The yeah. the deposits that everybody got, the, that the IRS is making. They're not calling it a child the, care credit. What are they calling the, that? The child tax credit uh, advance payments, right? Yes, right? Yeah. Everyone's got to deal with that now. I mean, there's a lot going on, right? And – Keeping your fees the same is just crazy. Now, just over half, 51%, are raising their fees 1% to 10%. Only 5% are raising their fees more than 10%. So I think just on the whole, we're undercharging or we're not raising our fees enough, right? Then there's a whole chart of you know average fees for different types of returns. I won't read the whole thing, but I did think it was interesting uh, that the the 1040 the typical 1040 return ranges between $188 to $317 depending on the different forms they've got for example a schedule C 1040 no state $317 i feel like this is why everyone wants to get out of the 1040 game cuz it's just you have to have a lot of volume to make money on 1040 returns those are the Individual tax returns, I should point out for our international listeners. 1065 returns, partnerships, federal partnership returns, $531. Then you get into the corporate returns, like the 1120s, $675. Similar for S corporations. The most expensive one is the federal estate return, 706, that comes in just under a thousand bucks. And then the states, the individual state returns that you add on to those 1040s, 74 bucks. Interestingly, 48% prepared a state return. They prepare state returns, but don't charge a specific state fee. So they're basically giving away the state returns, which is kind of also crazy. Half the people that responded to the survey will just do your tax, your state tax return right alongside of the federal one and not charge you for it. 
Right, which is like nuts because even TurboTax, they charge you for the state returns. Well, that's that's where they really make their money, I think, right? Because it seems you, cheap you, you, until you, you get to that. You have to, to buy it to unlock it or whatever, but you almost have no work to do because it just sucks all the data you just put into the TurboTax Federal. The vast majority of people are not charging any less for contactless tax preparation services than for in-person. Amazingly, 5% charge less for it. I don't understand that reasoning at all. 5% of tax preparers charge less when they went away from in-person. It's the same amount of work, arguably even more difficult to gather the materials. What different payment options do you offer? David, given that you're, you're given your employment at Milio, you might be interested to hear this. Oh, it's got to be the majority are paper check. <laughs> it's got to be still So 96, well, well, so this is uh, not exclusive. Okay, so this is inclusive. So 96% accept checks. I don't know, what are the 4%? Maybe they don't accept paper checks. Uh, 88% accept cash, which I think is a little nuts. Like, really, you take cash? Uh, 58% take credit or debit cards, which I think is extremely low. But given the miserliness of (laughs) us as a profession, and I say that with all uh, love, you know, we we tend to think, oh, two, three percent, crazy. I'm not going to do that. You can't give up that two, three percent if you're doing people's state taxes for free. I know, right? Just raise your fees three percent and take credit cards. Jeez, guys, thirty-eight percent accept some sort of fintech such as PayPal, Apple Pay, or similar, and then only sixteen percent take a refund settlement product as payment. I guess that's where it comes out of your refund, which I also think is kind of low because, like, why wouldn't you offer that if you're doing ten forties? So yeah, that 38% with like the fintechs, pretty darn low there. Do you generally require payment prior to filing? Oh, this is so sad, David. You want to take a guess? So this means, you know, do you get the money up front or do you wait until after? All right, so you come into my office. I'm going to prepare your taxes, but I'm not going to file them yet until you pay. And right. or, a lot of firms or you're just gonna... file it and then ask you for the money when I'm after that. Right, Yeah. So it's got to be 65%. 58% of firms do not require payment prior to filing. And you wonder why firms have trouble with cash flow. Once I've filed that return for you, David, I have no sway over you. How am I going to get you to pay on time? How, Especially right? if I'm only paying $180. Good luck. You're never going to yeah. get it. <laughs> I send you a bill. You know, I'm lucky if you ever pay me. Only 42%. You know, a little over four in 10 require payment prior to filing. This is like one of the easiest things that anyone could be doing. At least get half if you, if you don't want to get the whole thing. But I say get the whole thing. Don't file that. Don't file that return until they pay you. That's, that's, your, that's your ticket. Do you allow clients to pay you remotely using an online payment system? You want to guess again? Do you allow? <laughs> it, it, yes. So we went to 60%. I said, yeah, 65. So now we're probably putting 68%. So this is, um, so you're saying yes, 68% yes? Oh no, 68% no, I guess. Yeah. So, so this is actually counterintuitive. 61%, so the majority of firms will allow you to pay remotely using an online payment system. But shockingly, right, 39% still will not. So I'm guessing that if they don't allow that, that means that what, they have to mail you a check? Or it's the call in on the phone and read your credit card out to the oh, God. secretary. That's which I'm sure firms are doing, and that doesn't show up in these surveys. Uh, so there's a big breakdown of all the fees and by market and by number of returns and did all it, that stuff. Did it have anything in there about speed of like speed of the return or when how close you are to a deadline? Kind of like the way you, when you go to book an airplane ticket. If it's the five days before the flight, you're going to play considerably more than if you would have booked that ticket three months ago. And kind of I could see with returns, right? If you get in there in February, you're going to be motivated to get your, your all your required paperwork to an accountant in February. They can charge you less. But if you're one of the people that wait till two weeks for the deadline, you're going to pay considerably more. And but just the survey doesn't have anything on this. No, it doesn't. And I bet you if they did have this question in the survey, it would be pretty low. I feel like when I talk to firms, hardly anybody does surge pricing. And it makes so much sense. Like, why wouldn't you charge people more as they get closer to the date? Or if you prefer to think about it the other way, give people a discount for getting you their information early. And you could have it 
you could have it go up or down depending on the date. So if somebody gets you all of the information that you need in January, it's one price. The price goes up in February. It goes up in March. It goes up in April to some obscene amount, right? That'll help you balance out your your volume, right? Exactly. And then people aren't going to be complaining because the people in April will say, oh, I don't want to pay that double. I don't want to pay double, so I'll allow you to extend me. And it'll be the normal price. And then you're not killing yourself in April to do $125 tax returns. Yeah, right. Let, let, let your competition work on this and be miserable. And I actually think that, that a lot of firms are giving up the 1040s when they really don't have to. I think it's just because like, the volume's killing them because they don't have the process in place and they don't have the pricing in place to handle this and spread the work out. I think you actually could do it. And that's what some of these accounting firms with engineers are popping up and doing. And they're, they're going to figure it out. Somebody will do it. And then they'll have a huge chunk of that, that market. Or we'll just lose it all to the automatic tax prep software companies, to the TurboTax lives and all that. So you said you had another article before you jump into app news? Yeah, yeah. Um, so thank you for indulging me on that. I've got one more. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Dext. Providing your clients with timely and accurate insights may be your most important jobs as a trusted advisor. For most, giving insights is easy, but giving both timely and accurate insights is much more challenging. This is where the one, two, and now third punch of Dext comes in. Dext Prepare will help you be timely. Dext Prepare will quickly capture all the receipts, bills, and statements to easily and automatically enter the data directly into the accounting system of your choice. Dex Precision will help you be accurate. By finding anomalies and cleaning the data in the accounting system, Dex Precision also tracks your client's data health and performance metrics and provides powerful custom reports, including pivot tables. Dex Commerce will help you be both. On the expense side, it can fetch additional details from many transactions, including adding any missing data to existing transactions. And on the sales side, it can automatically import transactions from some of the most popular e-commerce shopping carts. To learn how your firm can save an average of 5.5 hours per client each month, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash dext. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash D-E-X-T. Accountants and bookkeepers make better business with Dext. So the IRS is looking into regulating tax return preparers once again. And this may seem like deja vu to some of our listeners because they tried this back in 2011. The IRS came up with a whole set of regulations for paid tax return preparers that required them to pass an initial certification exam. They had to pay annual fees, complete at least 15 hours of continuing education courses each year. They relied on part of the Internal Revenue Code enacted in 1884, which authorized it to regulate the practice of representatives of persons before the Department of Treasury. Of course, they got sued in a case uh, called Loving, and that got knocked down because the judge said, Congress didn't authorize you to regulate tax preparers, and your reading of this uh, law is, you know, Actually, it wasn't the Internal Revenue Code because it was 1884. It was some other law. <laughs> so it was this old law. They tried to justify it. Judge said, no, Congress has to give you this authority. Well, now the Democrats in Congress uh, are going to try and, it looks like, go for this. So this may actually happen. Uh, and I learned about this from our friend Caleb Newquist over at Gusto, who writes a wonderful newsletter called On the Margins. and. Rather than me explaining his opinion in this piece that he wrote, I figured it'd be nice if Caleb could tell you himself. So here's Caleb. Loving is Loving v. Commissioner, a case which basically said that the IRS overreached in its attempt to regulate tax preparers. So this time around, there's legislation introduced that would set minimum standards for tax preparers and give the IRS explicit authority to regulate them. That includes reinstituting, reinstituting the 2011 program, which had a competency exam and required continuing education. So I don't know if we can go so far as to say that this would amount 
to a federal license to prepare tax returns, but it's close. Anyway, this all stems from the general worry that tax preparers, as a general rule, don't need a license to practice. In other words, a non-CPA, non-enrolled agent, non-attorney who simply enjoys punching out 1040s can open a business preparing tax returns. And yes, sure, they have to fill out all the necessary paperwork and file it with the state or other jurisdiction as is required of any business. And yes, they need a preparer tax identification number, but you don't need a specific license. It's a little weird. And it's especially weird when you consider all the other jobs that do require licensure. They're the obvious ones like doctors, electricians, and teachers, but also obscure things like auctioneers, interior designers, makeup artists, and in Louisiana, for example, retail florists have to be licensed. But tax preparers don't need a license? That means any stranger can walk into the office of an uncredentialed tax preparer with all of their tax information for the year, including their social security number, their bank account number, address, the names of their spouse and dependents, and their social security numbers, and ask you to prepare their tax return. Then you, the professional tax preparer person, can demand payment for preparing that tax return. Or you could take all that information along with all the information you've collected from unsuspecting people who want their tax returns prepared and file a bunch of fake returns requesting big refunds and blow out of town. So I think it's a little, it's a little understandable why the IRS would want some oversight. It's just a little strange that they haven't had it all this time. And it's also super strange that a person in Baton Rouge can't sell you a bouquet of long-stemmed roses without a license, but could whip up your tax return with no issue at all. So I love this, David, because it, it goes back to what we were just talking about at the beginning of the show with this Eisner Amper private equity firm buyout, because they're buying the part of the firm that doesn't require a license. Right? That's what's allowing this to happen. And this is, I mean, we've talked about this, you know, becoming a CPA. I mean, obviously a license to file taxes is different, but becoming a CPA and it just, licensure in general stifles competition. It keeps, makes the profession not as accessible. It keeps people out of the profession. But I understand why they're doing it because I think, I think we had, we know about the fraud, right? Massive amounts of fraud. But then- Every year. Every year. Most of the returns are like the most mistakes filed by people that- are not don't have uh, licenses. License, yeah, yes. yes. Vast, vast majority of fraudulent returns, returns with mistakes, not EAs, not CPAs, not nothing. Yeah. So like having some sort of minimum standard. Yeah. I, I do believe that there is a benefit to a minimum standard through some sort of licensure. It can go overkill though and prevent competition and all that, but it's just kind of crazy. Like Caleb pointed out, it's, it's insane that the CPA profession actually makes so much of its money, especially in the small business world, doing taxes. And yet we don't need the CPA to do any of this stuff. And we're in competition with people who have zero licenses. Why do we allow this to happen? So we should be supporting this, you know, is the idea. And uh, yeah, I'm curious to know what our listeners think. If you want to tell us what you think, you can leave us a message, 202-695-1040, 202-695-1040. Give that number a call and, and let us know what you think about that story or anything else. And now, I believe it's time for App News. Yeah, let's jump in. So you're talking about these uh, accounting firms that aren't charging before they file the return. So now you're going to have an open invoice sitting there for $180. Yeah, maybe that you end up writing off completely. Well, the good news is Facebook is going to buy $100 million worth of unpaid invoices from 30,000 small businesses. You have to say that number again. That sounded big. $100 million they're going to use to purchase open invoices from 30,000 small businesses. Now, they're going to try to purchase these from um, minority and uh, women-owned businesses. And this is part of their program. So it's an official program called the Facebook Invoice Fast Track Program. Is, so essentially, Facebook is now in the business, is in the re- invoice refactoring business. So they're going to buy the invoices. Is this like a one-time thing, an ongoing thing? It looks like it's, uh, it was a test, and now it's being ramped up. So, so they're going to buy the invoices 1st. and then try to collect on them? 
Yes. And well, that's what's weird about this. I don't know what they're going to do with if they're that I'm confused about. It wasn't really clear on that. And the other piece of this was the dollar figure. So at a minimum, the invoice has to be $1,000. Um, but you can start submitting this into their process starting October 1st. You can start applying. And a lot of this is because they um, Facebook had $86 billion in revenue. And a lot of the revenue comes from small businesses advertising right. on Facebook. Right, yeah. So they're really just trying to be in the good social graces. And maybe this $100 million is really just a marketing expense. Mm. Who knows what they're going to do with these invoices? It's not very clear. So, yeah, because the thing I'm really curious on is like, okay, I can see why they would buy these invoices. It's sort of like a gesture of goodwill. Are they going to go out and collect them or are they just going to write them off? Like, what? Well, you're (sighs) going to get a banner on your face inside of Facebook that says you're you're a a delinquent payer. payer. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a whole new like social score. Uh, I I, I don't know, but this goes to one of my predictions, right? I was like, people that are not in this game are going to be in our game. And we've talked about this. We saw this with Netflix training people to be movie accountants and payroll accountants, right? They're developing courses on that. Fresh uh, Facebook, Facebook is now getting into this refactoring game. And now Amazon, I don't know if you saw this announcement, Amazon is going to launch a point of sale. This I'm very curious about because, I mean, they must have been using all this data from their own stores that they've created over the last few years to do this, right? Like we have an Amazon store in my neighborhood where you can go buy all the top rated stuff on Amazon. And like you walk into the store and you can have stuff shipped there. You can buy stuff by scanning a barcode on your app. Like it's it's really well run. I th- I don't necessarily think it's pulled from their own store type of direction. It's really, they have a secret project or I guess it's not secret now. It's something called Project Santos. It's an internal Amazon team set up just to compete with Spotify. Oh, you mean Shopify? Shopify, sorry. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure they have a different team to compete with Spotify as well. They've but already got Amazon Music, yes. Yes. So this is the team trying to compete with Shopify. And ultimately, a lot of people that have Shopify, Shopify has a, point a of physical sale. point of sale. Yeah. And you have your online store. Also, uh, if you're using PayPal, you can get a... PayPal point of sale, mm-hmm. and you have your online store, right? And this goes just like we talked about into it. This is why they have an interest in MailChimp. They want that online store. Yeah. Amazon has lots of third-party sellers that have online stores, but Amazon doesn't have any way to block Shopify right. from going after them. So by having a point of sale, now when Shopify comes knocking on your door, you're less likely to leave Amazon. I like this as somebody who likes Amazon, but if I were advising a small business as to which point of sale they should use, I I wouldn't necessarily recommend they use the Amazon one because Amazon has a really bad reputation of taking the data from its third-party sellers and then using that data to sell its own products that undercut its third-party sellers. Like it has a- Point of sale would be able to use both online, track online and offline transactions. Right. And link it to other services, including Prime and Flex, which really Prime is like their ultimate database of who's doing what. Right. It would would give them so much data on what its Prime members are doing, where they're shopping. So it's like small businesses, they use Amazon all the time, but they're also in competition with Amazon. Like, I wonder. I wonder. Amazon declined to comment, which obviously means like the story is probably true. You know, Amazon has been under antitrust crosshairs or scrutiny or, you know, people have been talking about how it might be broken up at some point because of this conflict it has where it runs a a marketplace, but then it also competes in that marketplace with its third-party sellers. And there are some people out there who say, you shouldn't be allowed to do that. You should either run the marketplace and not sell the stuff on the marketplace, or you should sell stuff in your own store and not run a marketplace. But that's silly because, like, if you go to Costco, you can buy that Costco-branded vodka and the Costco-branded beers. I know. And I was just at CVS, and you go to the drug aisle, right, the pharmacy section or the -the over-the-counter stuff, right? And they'll have the Robitussin there, and then they'll have the CVS brand. Yeah, Walgreens has it. Target has it. I mean, in a way, like, these companies manufacture this for them. I mean, where do you think Amazon's going to get their batteries made? Same place everyone else does, The same factory. (laughs) 
Yeah, that's true. Uh, so maybe it is overblown. But this goes to, you know, I think we've heard rumors about Amazon working on, we covered it before about inventory. What if Amazon builds a GL? This is another one that's very, uh, Intuit has to be scared of Amazon right. as well. Yeah. This is, it, it's so funny how much is played up about QuickBooks versus Zero, And like, that's the least of either one of those companies' concerns. So we got to talk about Quicken. Quicken is being sold again. I saw this in TechCrunch. The backstory here. In April of 2016, Intuit divested to a private equity firm called HIG Capital for an undisclosed amount. And that was after having Quicken for some 17 straight years not grow as a product. And it was their first product, let's be clear. It's it's like 1982, 1983, I think, is the birth of Intuit and Quicken being the first product. Yep. And I, I'm very partial to it because... Quicken and I share a birthday. We're this we're the same age. And so I, you know, I want Quicken to live a long time and be happy. And it actually looks like it, it is. In an interview with TechCrunch, Quicken CEO Eric Dunn shared details about what's been going on with Quicken over the last five years. And not only that, the last so he was employee number four at Intuit. It's pretty cool. Yeah. And it was interesting, he was a CFO, but he was also a software development developer. So he wrote a lot of the code. So he's like really emotionally invested yep. in Quicken. So when they sold Quicken, he left into it and moved with Quicken. I love this. So he's been like shepherding this thing. He's this, this is his baby. And he's he's taking good care of it, it seems like. So, so they said, here's the numbers. He said that they have 2 million active users, which is, quote, significantly higher, unquote, than what it had at the time of its spinoff from Intuit. He declined to reveal hard revenue figures, but he did share that the company is profitable and has seen a 50% increase in annual sales volume over the five-year period. I mean, that's not amazing growth, right? Because it's over five years, they've gone up 50%. But hey, not bad for a product that just did nothing, like you said, for all those years. They also said their NPS score, their net promoter score, increased 25 points over that five-year period, uh, which is a lot. If you just went from zero to 25, that would be amazing. That's a big improvement. If I, because there's tons of these personal finance apps popping up now, tons mm. of them. Obviously, Intuit bought Mint years yep. ago, but there's, there's tons of them popping up. All the banks are offering this as part of their own services. If you notice your bank, a lot of times now will tell you, look up your other accounts you have. Run all your finances here on our website. Yep. Like Quicken, if they would play this up as a privacy play, like, hey, track your budgets and your finances. It's offline, but it's on your own hard drive. There's nobody reading your data. They might have a play there. I think so. Because it's a paid product. So you aren't the customer if you use it. I mean, no, you are the customer if you use it. You're not the product. Right? That's the thing. Is If you're not paying for something, you're the product. Just like on Facebook, right? Facebook is free. We, the users, are the product. The customers are the small businesses advertising on it. Okay, but back to Quicken. But, but, mm -hmm. but just like everything else, everything's only as good as it's bank feeds. I tried to use their new product, Simplify. It's like four bucks a month. I signed up for it. I can't connect it to my credit union. Uh -oh. And at this point, like once you're, once you are used to bank feeds, I'm not doing data entry. Well, you know, it is kind of your fault for using some dinky credit union in Tucson, but no, it's, it's, it's the biggest credit union in the state of Arizona. Come <laughs> I'm on. Just, I'm just it's joking. Phoenix, I'm for just, crying out loud. Just, don't, you don't even have a branch in Tucson. I'm just messing with you. Messing with you. Uh, so, so you brought up their, their new product. So they have been building a digitally native product called Simplify with an I, not a Y. And it looks really nice. That's what they're investing in. They're trying to get, I guess, the Quicken users over to that product. What else? They have 150 people on the team. They're going to continue to hire. They've got 250 contracted customer care agents. So I guess those are, that's the call center where you call for help. And they're really going to focus on growing the Simplify product, which has only been around for 18 months. They need to add more features in order to get people to use that thing. And like you said, David, maybe the bank feeds, maybe they should fix that. Do you know if they're using one of these um, you know, bank feed providers? Are they doing it themselves? Like, is that the issue? I think they might be using Facinity. I'm not positive. Uh, but the funny thing about this article, so people who use Quicken are obsessed with Quicken and they're, they're hobbyists. Well, because it's a good right. it's a good product. It's been around for a long time. It's mature. Yeah, but they're also just um, like personal finance hobbyists. 
Like that's their thing they like to do. So the private equity investment firm that is purchasing them, they are based in New York and London. They have $6.9 billion in assets under management. But the president, uh, Vicenzo Vicenzo La Rufa, he uses Quicken himself. (laughs) It's amazing how many people that you would not think actually still use Quicken. And I I remember... uh, Somebody was uh, did a keynote into it, and that person was still talking about how like they've been using Quicken mm-hmm. for twenty years, and they just still do it. They still data entry into Quicken, and they love having their twenty years of data in Quicken. Like people are kind of almost irrationally hooked on it. Uh, well, it's it's it takes some learning to use, but it's not nearly as difficult as QuickBooks, and it's very powerful. And if you want to do personal finance and actually see everything in one place, there's not a lot of places you can do that in a in an affordable product. What else we got in app news? Just to go back to your trend that you've been highlighting for w- weeks and weeks on uh, Afterpay, PayPal is buying a Japanese company called Paydy, P-A-I-D-Y, for $2.7 billion. And it's an Afterpay company, buy now, pay later. It's going to boost PayPal's business in the world's third largest e-commerce market. I guess this is not nearly as big as Square's purchase of uh, Afterpay for $29 because this is only $2.7 billion, But I mean, billions, lots of billions going around in this Afterpay flying world. Flying around, flying yeah. around. <laughs> Another uh, trend we've kind of been is this shift of everything going into one app. So Clio Law Firm Software, we've talked about that before. So Clio is niche software just for like solo to five to 10 person law firms. It's not, they're not going after the big, huge firms, but they're super niche and that, and there's winning law firms. And they're almost like QuickBooks in a way where apps add on to Clio law firm software and Clio purchased, uh, well, they took that big round before because they're going to launch like a Clio live service. And then they bought a CRM. So you, like your clients, you track your clients in your CRM that sends that data over to your Clear law firm software so you can track the work you're doing for them on their case and then bill them. Now they've actually purchased, uh, in July, they purchased a product called Calendar Rules, which basically helps a lawyer automatically uh, schedule their court dates. And now they just purchased another company called LawYaw, L-A-W-Y-A-W. LawYaw. And and what it does, it basically lets you take all your existing legal documents and turn them into reusable templates. And it's all done online in the cloud, but then those templates can pull out and then you can finish them and wrap them up and bundle them together using Microsoft Word. So they're really getting into the full end-to-end. Yeah. And this is kind of like Intuit purchasing e-commerce software, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And, you know, uh, zero purchasing HubDoc. Everybody's trying to build that end-to-end into their software. Now, who knows? Maybe we'll be in this trend of bundling and then everything will get unbundled again. But the pendulum's definitely in 2021 is swinging really hard towards bundling everything. Uh, another example of this Notion. So I, I, I think you're using Notion now, right? Notion.so. The uh, .io. Notion. Oh no, maybe Notion is .so or is it Notion. Yeah. The, so the app I use, if you're talking about the wiki, that but is. Yeah, it's like a wiki, no code solution app. Yeah, Notion.so. And it's it's really like designed for teams that want to make a wiki. You can do some project management in there, but it's really like like imagine a Google Doc that just nested forever. Yeah, and it also does a little bit of that like a cello or ClickUp type boards and team a little, management a little bit, workflow. Yeah, yeah. Well, they actually purchased a product called Automate.io. Automate.io is basically is kind of a version of Zapier, where they connect to now now. Notion's going to be able to connect to 200 other apps all from within their own product. So I'm really excited because I use Notion for collecting all my articles for our show and I categorize them, I tag them, I archive them, I do all that stuff in there. And uh, yeah, one of the things that though that I've, I've missed about Notion going, comparing it to like ClickUp or Asana is it doesn't have as much of the automation. So what's interesting, right? We, I, I think, you know, Dextbot, uh, the e-commerce play, um, uh, Greenback, and they're calling that now they're calling that um, Dex Commerce. Intuit purchased one SaaS, but then they also purchased that other uh, Trade Gecko. Yeah, whatever happened right. to that one SaaS acquisition? Like, I, I feel like I never heard anything after that. Well, I th- and so, but what, where I'm going with this is like these companies are instead of there being middleman apps, mm-hmm. they're just buying the middleman app and bringing it into theirs. Now, I don't know if this is going to be better or worse. 
because chances are Notion's not going to help automate.io integrate with thousands of apps. Right. They're just going to use the rails that have been created to enhance Notion further. So then there's always going to be this, oh, I need to use this other app. And then you're going to have to go use Zapier, a different tool anyways. Like, I don't necessarily know if companies owning the middleman apps is actually going to help the end users. No, no, I don't think it will. Yeah, probably not. But, you know, when was the last time you set up a Zap? It's a very niche thing. You, you know, you talk about like Quicken being kind of a hobbyist financial app. To me, Zapier is a hobbyist automation thing where the vast majority of people are just never going to want to do it because it's so incredibly frustrating. Like I, I've actually been trying to use Zapier to set up a, a certain kind of automation into Notion. Can't get it to work. It's something to do with formatting, HTML, not converting into plain text properly. Can't get the markdown to show up. You, right, know, you, you get to like 90% and that one field you want isn't supported. Exactly. Exactly. So it's like people like you and me and uh, and what Jason stats, right? We, we might go at it and have fun with it, but like most people don't want to do that. So that's that's why they're doing this so that they can make it perfect. They can get the, to the 100% for their own app. Well, that's their, their bet. Right. And, and the reason they're doing it, because I'm sure they've talked to their users and their users were like, oh yeah, I'm so glad to see you're in Zapier notion. Yeah, yeah. Oh, but it's so hard. I couldn't get to work. Like, oh, why don't we just build that ourselves? They're buying these companies, but my money's on, they're not going to actually make it better or easier. They've heard the users, the demand is there. The market demand is there, mm-hmm. but I'm not, I'm just not sure that's the solution. Go buy these, these apps, these middleman apps and slap your brand on them. I don't yeah. know if, if that's the solution. Well, we're almost out of time, but I got one more, a few more, maybe if we can fit it in. Expensify has announced a big change to their Expensify cards. They're now going to offer cash back, which is big for me because I always thought that was one of the reasons not to use Expensify cards is because you know you use the card from your bank and, hey, I can get one, two, maybe even more percent cash back. And that really adds up if I'm spending a lot on ads or uh, equipment for my business or whatever. Don't I have an email from... David Barrett. Yeah, you got one. It was actually pretty short this time. No, no, no. An email about a year ago where he was like, it's so stupid, cash back and rebates, where he actually <laughs> said the example, if you're driving down the street and you see a furniture store that is a sign that says 1% off, you're not going to pull over. Like a whole, I, I like an eight page long email Yeah, well, against uh, this idea. Yeah, obviously they had to give in at some point, right? Because why would you go use a corporate card that doesn't give you cash back when all the other ones do? So, so- so here now they're going to offer if you spend over 25k combined across all cards you get unlimited 1% cash back and if you spend over 250k combined across all cards you get unlimited 2% cash back. Did I say that right? It's 1% then 2%. So 25k 1%, 250k 2%. So that's obviously a lot of money to be spending on your card if you're just uh small. But you know, for most businesses like if they're doing everything on their cards, like a lot of startups, right, that'll add up and you'll quickly get to the 2%. So I have a prediction what Expensify will announce next based on, uh, I think we talked about, I don't remember which card it was last week, but we talked about one of the the Brex style, Ramp style cards where you, they're free or the Divi style cards, right? And, and that card was born out of their other company where they would help employees get refunds back for their spend. Right, if the price went cheaper, they would contact the merchant and get the refunds back. So it's a, so it's an add-on value, right, to using those platforms. Mm. Well, Ramp Ramp just raised three hundred million dollars, but that's not really the important part here. But they made their first acquisition, and they acquired a company called Buyer, and basically it's negotiation as a service. So what they're helping the average client of Buyer saves an average of twenty seven percent on big t- ticket purchases. So if you're if you're using Ramp and now you're using Buyer, and now you have to go get a Salesforce subscription. They negotiate on your behalf, and you get get it for cheaper. Oh, that that is interesting, especially. So for I those- feel like, in a way, like Expensify used to be the leader of innovation, and I feel like they're always playing catch up. These days, it seems like it, doesn't it? Because what what's interesting too about these free services that are out there. You know, the ramps and the Brexes, and they're all adding like more value than their free product. 
Because if they're all free, right, how are they going to differentiate unless they provide service? Even the 1% or 2% is not differentiation anymore. No, it's just sort of like table stakes. But now if you can go to your, you know, go to some a company and be like, hey, we're going to help you sa- save 25% on your software contracts, that moves the needle at your company. So I, I guess we'll see an email about this from Expensify in a year from now. That's my prediction. Well, that is it for this week. Again, if you want to leave us a message, let us know what you think. 202-695-1040. Or you can leave a review and let us know what you think there. And I believe we did get two reviews this week. All right. So one's really, really clean and simple. This is from Smackaramus. Wait, no, let me read this again. Smack Ramen. Smack Ramen. Oh, I love ramen. This is a five-star review. It says, nice work, like learning about new products. And then we get a second review that was an Apple podcast. And this review is from Tricky Nikki 360 It says, thank you, Blake and Oliver. Thank you for never missing a show. I always get so excited when I see the blue Cloud Accounting Podcast logo at the top of my podcast feed because it means a new show just dropped. Great content and thought leadership. Would love to see more deep dives into different apps. Uh, blue Heart, Nikki Mac. Thank you, Nikki. On Apple Podcasts. Well, review. You read that very well, Oliver. I, I feel like that happened. that's actually happened more than once. People think that you are Oliver and I am Blake. Or they'll call me David and they'll call you Oliver. That's right. I get Oliver a lot. Well, I was, I went to a Catholic boys' school. I was Oliver for like half my life, so I'm used to it. It's it's what happens when you have two first names, also. That's um, how it is. But just how if it anybody is. wants to leave us a review, you can do it on Podchaser or on Apple Podcasts. And uh, I think that's it, right? <laughs> no more. Yeah. If somebody wants to get a hold of you, Blake, what's the best way? I am at Blake T Oliver on Twitter. How about you, David? I'm just at David Leary. If you reach out to either of us on LinkedIn and want to connect, just say, I'm not a bot. And that way we know you're not a bot. Until next time, stay uh, stay healthy and enjoy having your kids in school. Bye, everyone. Bye. Time for the classifieds. If you're looking to fast track a scalable seven-figure accounting firm that doesn't drive you into the ground, Check out Ryan Lazanis' online coaching membership, Future Firm Accelerate. Designed around Ryan's experience taking his cloud firm from scratch to sale so that you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You'll get online learning and topics that help you automate and systemize all aspects of your firm. You'll get coaching when you need help with implementation. And you'll also join a collaborative community of hundreds of other forward-thinking firm owners. For more details, head over to www.futurefirmaccelerate.com. That is www.futurefirmaccelerate.com. I quickly wanted to let you know about a new project that I've been working on for the last year or so. I'm launching a podcast network called Accounting Podcast Network. It has new podcasts that I know you'll love, like the Accounting Salon Conversations podcast hosted by Amanda Aguilar and the Accounting Automation Workflows podcast, co-hosted by Brian Clare and Heather Satterley. Head over to accountingpodcastnetwork.com. That's accountingpodcastnetwork.com. Want to get the word out about your newsletter, webinar, party, Facebook group, podcast, ebook, job posting, or that fancy Excel macro you just created? Why not let the listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast know by running a classified ad? Hit the show notes for the link to get more info.